Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. Friends, welcome back. Today we are in for a real treat as we host colleagues and fellows from Emory Cardiovascular Fellowship Training Program. Such a special case, very excited to dive in, but before we do, Let's introduce our guests, Drs. Sonali Kumar, John Lusko, and John Ricketts. Folks, welcome to the show. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Thank you, Ahmed, for having us here. My name is Sonali Kumar, and I am currently a second-year cardiology fellow in the academic clinical research track at Emory University. I am from Washington, D.C., and went to medical school at the George Washington University went to Emory for residency and chose to stay on here at, at Emory for cardiology fellowship. I'm interested in both interventional and structural cardiology. I love spending time with my family, my fiance, and playing with my seven-month-old French bulldog puppy, Louis, in my free time. Hi, thanks for having us, Ahmed. Really excited to be here. I'm John Ricketts. I'm originally from Alabama. I did both my undergrad and med school there, so roll tide, and then came to Emory in Atlanta for residency, and I am currently in my seventh year at Emory. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow doing some specialization in advanced and structural imaging and looking forward to going into private practice next year for general cardiology and advanced imaging. In what free time I have, I enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and just hanging out with my friends. Thanks, Amith, again for the invitation. I'm John Lisko. I was born and raised in Youngstown, Ohio, which is about an hour away from the Cleveland Clinic. Um, my wife and I then did medical school at Northeast Ohio Medical University as part of their combined BSMD program. And then we both couples matched here at Emory, where I completed an internal medicine residency and stayed on as a cardiology fellow under the academic clinical research tract. And my wife completed a residency in psychiatry and geriatric psychiatry, and now is in practice in Atlanta. I'm currently in my sixth year at Emory with the plan to hopefully stay for nine. And my interests are in structural heart disease. So I did two years of research with the structural heart team and then transitioned over as a clinical fellow. In my free time, my wife and I really enjoy living in the city of Atlanta. 
and trying the multitude of restaurants that are available here. You guys, I'm so excited to have you all on. And speaking of Atlanta, I've never been. Before we dive into the awesome case you guys have prepared for us, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about Atlanta, what you guys like doing, and where you want to take us cardioners today for the case discussion? So I think Atlanta is a really great city. It's a nice mix of being a, a big metropolitan area, as well as having a lot of ways to kind of escape without having to go too far outside the city. I think for all of us, pre-COVID and fingers crossed post-COVID, our favorite place to go is something called the Beltline, which is a big trail that has piecemeal been constructed through large parts of the city. Ultimately, it's planned to go all the way around the perimeter of the city, but is a great place to walk and has tons of shops and parks and restaurants and things like that along the way and is a really great place to go spend an afternoon when you're not on call or a weekend that you have free. John, that's incredible. I'm actually pulling up images on Google Images of the Beltline in Atlanta, and it looks just gorgeous. What a great way of spending our Sunday. All right, here we are, strolling down the Beltline, hanging out. Why don't we talk some cardiology? What's your case? Sounds good. So the case we're going to present today is going to be presented a little bit differently than I think cases are normally presented on this podcast, in that we're going to give you the punchline up front and that we know exactly what this patient has and why they're coming. But what the mystery is, is how are we going to fix it? And what we're going to end up discussing are some really novel techniques for fixing a really old problem. So our case starts with a chief complaint of shortness of breath. Our patient is a 77-year-old female with a past medical history of rheumatic valve disease of both her aortic and mitral valves, status post-surgical aortic valve replacement in 1990, as well as a redo in 2013, at which time she had a St. Jude 21-millimeter mechanical bileaflet valve placed. She also has HEF-PEF, non-obstructive coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, hypothyroidism, and sick sinus syndrome status post-dual lead pacemaker who presents to us with progressively worsening shortness of breath. So this patient has a history of rheumatic valvular disease resulting initially in severe aortic stenosis that required surgical aortic valve replacement in 1990 with a subsequent redo in 2013. She tolerated both procedures, but for about the past three years, she's been complaining of progressive worsening in both her baseline shortness of breath as well as worsening dyspnea on exertion. This patient was felt by her primary cardiologist that these symptoms were due to worsening in her rheumatic mitral valve disease. And so in September of 2019, due to moderate mitral stenosis, at that time she had a mean gradient across the valve of about 7 millimeters of mercury, about 2 plus MR, the patient underwent a shockwave balloon lithotripsy of her mitral valve, hoping for improvement in her symptoms. However, by January of 2020, her symptoms had continued to worsen, and by this point, her resting mitral gradient was up to 16 millimeters of mercury at a heart rate of 65 beats per minute. And so at this point, she was referred to the structural heart team at Emory for consideration for advanced transcatheter valve therapy. As far as the patient's past medical history, like we already discussed, she has severe aortic stenosis, status post SAVR times 2, in 1990 and 2013. The patient has severe mitral stenosis, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes, and six sinus syndrome status post dual lead pacemaker. As far as surgical history, she's had two sternotomies with surgical aortic valve replacement. As far as cardiac medications, she's on amlodipine 10 milligrams a day, hydrochlorothiazide 25 milligrams a day, losartan 100 milligrams a day, metoprolol succinate or toprol XL 100 milligrams a day, and is on warfarin for anticoagulation. As far as her allergies, she's allergic to several antibiotics, including penicillin, clindamycin, and vancomycin. 
For her family history, both her father and mother passed away at an age of 87. They both suffered from heart disease and diabetes, and her mother also suffered from stroke. Socially, the patient denied any tobacco, alcohol, or recreational drug use. On initial presentation, her vital signs were largely within normal limits. Her temperature was 36.6 centigrade. Her blood pressure was slightly elevated at 149 over 76 with a heart rate of 71, and the patient was saturating 96% on room air. Physical exam, largely normal once again, other than for her respiratory exam, which did show some bibasilar crackles, but non-labored respirations and symmetrical chest wall expansion. And her cardiovascular exam did have a diastolic murmur that was fairly significant, best heard at the apex. She also had that systolic click from her mechanical aortic valve. She did have sort of one plus bilateral pitting edema of her lower extremities, but most of her symptoms were left-sided. Other elements of her exam, including gastrointestinal, musculoskeletal, neurologic, and psychiatric, were all within normal limits. As far as her labs, once again, largely normal. Sodium was 133, potassium was a little low at 3.2, BUN and creatinine were 16 and 0.9, liver enzymes all normal, magnesium was a little bit low at 1.6, CBC looked good, her white count was 5.0, H&H 13.1 and 39.9 with platelets of 180. Her COAG studies were a little bit elevated due to her being on warfarin with a PT of 33.6, a PTT of 46.8, and an INR of 2.87. Her troponin was negative, BNP was slightly elevated at 112, and her hemoglobin A1C was normal at 6.0%. Her initial chest x-ray did show some vascular congestion, but what you really get a sense of from looking at her chest x-ray is how much work that she had done in her chest. You can see the sternotomy wires from her previous two sternotomies. You can see the annular ring of her surgical aortic valve replacement, and you can see her pacemaker with leads going into the right atrium and the right ventricle. Her EKG on presentation was atrially sensed and V-paced at a rate of 65. And with that, I'm going to pass it over to Sonali to talk a little bit more about the mitral valve itself and mitral valve disease. Perfect. Thank you. So I'd like to start with a brief review of the anatomy. So the function of the mitral valve depends on the anatomic components of the mitral apparatus, which is formed by two leaflets, the annulus, the corti tendony, and the papillary muscles, all working together well in coordination. The annulus is saddle-shaped with the fixed part, which is the anterior leaflet, which is semilunar in shape, and is shared with the aortic annulus in a more dynamic portion the more quadrangular-shaped posterior leaflet made up of three scallops that make up most of the circumference of the annulus. The atrial myocytes and nerve fibers extend from the mitral annulus and are contained within the annulus to the leaflet transition zone. This is what allows for maintaining that critical electrophysiological continuity with the rest of the heart. Diseases of the mitral valve include valvular stenosis, regurgitation, and prolapse. We will primarily focus on stenosis here. Next, I'd like to move on to the epidemiology of mitral stenosis, and it's really the only valvular disease in developed countries still mostly due to rheumatic heart disease. It makes up about 85% of the cases. Degenerative cases account for 12%. This is reversed for most other valvular diseases. So in a study of elderly patients from the EuroHeart survey, mitral annular calcification represented 
and 60% of mitral stenosis for groups with advancing age groups from 60 to 70 years, 70 to 80 years, and over 80 years respectively. Mitral stenosis due to severe mitral annular calcification accounts for 0.5% of outpatient echoes. In a study of elderly patients with a mean age of 83, assessment of echoes showed a rate of 6% for mitral annular calcification, or MAC, that created a hemodynamically significant obstruction. The prevalence and severity of MAC is directly proportional to age, hence why elderly have a higher tendency for it. Mitral stenosis characteristically has a slow progression. The average decrease in mitral valve area is 0.01 centimeters squared per year. It has a heterogeneous progression rate, so about more than One out of three patients have a stable valve area, but others may have a yearly decrease of between 0.1 and 0.3 centimeters squared. Now, this can be more rapid if the valve anatomy is more severely impaired. And importantly, there's a 1 to 6% annual risk of thromboembolic events. Asymptomatic patients tend to have a good prognosis. Their 20-year survival rate exceeds 80%. And the 10-year survival rate ranges from 30 to 60% after the onset of symptoms. For the etiology of mitral stenosis, like we discussed before, rheumatic mitral stenosis remains the most common worldwide. This is a delayed complication of rheumatic fever. Degenerative calcific mitral valve disease is frequently seen in elderly patients and is associated with hypertension, mechanical stress, diabetes, coronary artery disease, systemic inflammation, and CKD. There can also be congenital etiologies, including a parachute mitral valve and a supramitral ring, infiltrating diseases such as mucopolysaccharidosis, radiation, valve stenosis after valve repair, multi-system diseases such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, as well as abnormal serotonin metabolism due to carcinoid. So we'll delve a little bit more into calcific mitral valve disease, which as John pointed out, was critical for this patient's case. And recognizing MAC is important due to its association with classic risk factors, increased incidence of cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular death, and all-cause mortality. Patients with MAC often have a higher prevalence of AV block, bundle branch block, conduction delay, and atrial fibrillation. The pathophysiology involves degenerative age-related factors and atherosclerosis. The etiology is really due to anything that leads to increased mitral valve stress. So this is going to be accelerated in cases of hypertension, aortic stenosis, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Congenital metabolic disorders can also contribute, as well as abnormal calcium and phosphorus metabolism. So Nali, it's interesting, the abnormal calcium and phosphorus metabolism, this patient initially had a mechanical aortic valve replacement, it sounds like almost two decades ago from the time of presentation. And warfarin as a vitamin K antagonist can cause abnormal systemic calcification. There are vitamin K dependent enzymes that scavenge calcium. And so by inhibiting vitamin K through warfarin, there's definitely been reports of pathobiology of increased vascular calcification. And I wonder if a similar pathophysiology may be in play in some patients that develop MAC who've been on warfarin for such a long time, but very interesting. Right. And definitely interesting point to bring up. Um, it definitely could have been playing a role in the pathophysiology in this patient's case. So next, we'll talk about the important implications of MAC during transcatheter or surgical intervention. So there can be risk of rupture at the AV junction or LV-free wall, 
There can be injury to the left circumflex artery during debridement. In cases of less aggressive debridement, there may be residual paraprosthetic mitral regurgitation. Severe MAC has often been considered a contraindication for percutaneous intervention with a mitral clip, and having MAC has been an independent predictor of needing pacemaker after TAVR. So just briefly, we'll talk about the pathophysiology of this disease. The normal mitral valve area is 4 to 6 centimeters squared. The pathophysiology depends on the amount of diastolic flow across the valve and the filling period. Shortness of breath is often seen with increasing mean left atrial pressure and is inversely related to the R-to-R interval. And atrial contraction is really what maintains flow across the stenosed mitral valve. Atrial fibrillation is an important precipitating factor for symptoms because, as we know, it's strongly associated with tachycardia and irregular R-to-R interval and a lack of coordinated atrial contraction. And unlike cases of aortic stenosis, the opening of a stenotic mitral valve remains fixed, even if there are changes in flow and pressure, for example, due to exercise or dobutamine. Patients with severe mitral stenosis will often have very little functional reserve, possibly easily decompensating with tachycardia or a high flow state. The valve can regain valve reserve to some degree after valvuloplasty due to increased size and increased flow. You know, Sonali, this is such a great review of mitral stenosis. And I just have to say that from the provider perspective, managing patients with mitral stenosis is honestly one of the most challenging structural abnormalities to help a patient through. In diastole, blood fills from the left atrium into the left ventricle. This is a low-pressure system during ventricular left-sided diastole, and you're depending on a large annulus to allow the low-pressure system to fill, hopefully, a normal ventricle. And so, as you can imagine, as the annulus becomes more and more stenotic, the normal low-pressure system starts backing up blood, increasing the pressure. This patient has a mean gradient of 16 in a system that should have much lower pressures. You get backup of blood flow into the lungs, you get dyspnea, and it's just so challenging. And you get this shift, right? In a normal, healthy heart without mitral stenosis, the predominant phase of diastole is that early diastolic period. But as you're saying is with mitral stenosis, you start relying more and more heavily on the atrial kick to fill. And so when you lose that atrial kick, these patients can become very symptomatic. But at the same time, they're more likely to develop atrial fibrillation because of the LA stretch that occurs with this back pressure from the mitral stenosis itself. And the point that you're making about the inverse relationship with the R to R interval is so important. I think it's worth re-emphasizing that essentially, because there's this obstruction to flow across the mitral valve, it's hard for the LV to fill. And so you need more time to fill, right? And so as a patient's heart rate increases, their diastolic period decreases, and they will have less time to fill the LV. The LV has less preload, and the pulmonary pressures increase because you have worsening buildup of that pressure. And so, you know, for these patients, we say that managing their heart rate to decrease their heart rate and prolong their diastolic period is so important. And so, you know, this patient is on metoprolol 100 milligrams. And these patients, when they get AFib with RVR, they lose that atrial kick and they decrease their diastolic time. So not only are they losing the atrial systole to help fill across the mitral valve, you also just have less time to get the blood through that orifice. And again, just to reiterate how important that heart rate is in mitral stenosis, allowing the ventricle to fill despite an obstructed orifice and how that plays into the physiology. So really, it can be very challenging, especially when they have AFib. Perfect. Thank you, Amit, for really highlighting those salient points when it came to 
the physiology and really highlighting the point about having a coordinated atrial contraction. We thought it would be a good idea. Something that I think all of us benefit from is reviewing the AHA and ACC guidelines. So we'll go through the stage, how to define valve anatomy, valve hemodynamics, the consequences, and the symptoms for mitral stenosis. And again, this is from the AHA and ACC guidelines. So beginning with stage A, which is defined as being at risk for mitral stenosis, for this, for the anatomy, we can appreciate mild valve doming during diastole. There will be a normal transmitral flow velocity, and usually no hemodynamic consequences or any symptoms. Stage B is defined as progressive mitral stenosis. And with this, there is rheumatic valve changes with commissural fusion and diastolic doming of the mitral valve leaflets and a planimetered mitral valve area of more than 1.5 centimeters squared. There is increased transmitral flow velocities, mitral valve area of more than 1.5 centimeters squared, and a diastolic pressure halftime of less than 150 milliseconds. Hemodynamically, we can appreciate a mild to moderate left atrial enlargement and normal pulmonary pressure at rest with no symptoms. For stage C, this is defined as asymptomatic severe mitral stenosis. In this, there are rheumatic valve changes with commissural fusion and diastolic doming of the mitral valve leaflets. The planimetered mitral valve area is less than or equal to 1.5, but can be less than or equal to 1 in cases of very severe disease. The diastolic pressure halftime is greater than or equal to 150 milliseconds and can be greater than or equal to 220 in cases of severe mitral stenosis. We can appreciate severe left atrial enlargement and an elevated pulmonary artery systolic pressure of more than 30 and no symptoms because these patients are classified as being asymptomatic. That brings us to stage D, which is defined as symptomatic severe mitral stenosis. And in this there are rheumatic valve changes with commissural fusion and diastolic doming of the mitral valve leaflets and a planimetered mitral valve area of less than or equal to 1.5 centimeters squared. Now, this can be less than 1 centimeter squared with very severe disease. The diastolic pressure halftime is greater than or equal to 150 milliseconds and can be greater than or equal to 220 milliseconds with very severe mitral stenosis. Hemodynamically, you'll appreciate severe left atrial enlargement and an elevated pulmonary artery systolic pressure of more than 30. And now these are the patients that we classically see with decreased exercise tolerance and exertional shortness of breath. Yes, yeah, Sonali, this, this table that we're looking at for the different stages of uh, mitral valve stenosis is so useful. And this construct is a construct that we've, we've gone over multiple times, right? Any abnormality on imaging or any structural abnormality Whatever it is, whether it's HCM or mitral stenosis in this case, we think what is the structural problem, the anatomic problem, and then what is the hemodynamic consequence? And so with worsening stages, you have worsening level of mitral valve stenosis and the structural features of the cause of mitral valve stenosis, right? That's the structural problem. And then we think, what is the hemodynamic consequence? Right, the left atrium we've said before is like the A1C of left-sided filling pressure. So the left atrium may become larger as pressure backs up your pulmonary systolic pressure. Your pulmonary pressures go up as you develop worsening progressive group two pulmonary hypertension. And this diastolic pressure halftime concept, I think, is very useful and very, kind of intuitive, right? Because as the degree of obstruction worsens, it's going to take longer and longer for the pressure gradient to go down. It's going to take longer to fill blood. 
to move blood from the LA into the LV because of that obstruction. And as it takes longer and longer, the diastolic pressure halftime increases, which is the time it takes for the pressure gradient to decrease to half, uh, which is, again, just a flip side of saying that, look, if a patient's heart rate is higher, you have less diastolic time, and you actually may not even get to a point where you've filled the LV all the way because your diastolic pressure halftime, your diastolic time overall is increasing to greater and greater degrees. Uh, you know, a lot of details there, but the core concepts remain the same. What is a structural problem? What is a hemodynamic consequence? And here, the hemodynamic consequences of mitral stenosis are longer diastolic times to fill from the LA to the LV, increasing LA size and worsening pulmonary pressure. So very intuitive, just in terms of breaking it down in that way. Great. Yeah, thank you, Amit. There was a lot of information. I think you really distilled it down to the core important aspects. And the ACC and AHA have amazing figures and tables uh, for the management of different types of mitral valve stenosis. And for severe rheumatic mitral stenosis, in symptomatic cases where you have favorable morphology, you don't have a clot in the left atrium, have no or mild mitral regurgitation, a percutaneous mitral valve balloon commissurotomy or PMBC is a class one recommendation. And when you don't have favorable anatomy, then a mitral valve replacement is class one. And when we were talking about this case earlier, as John Ricketts had mentioned, for the longest time, either periodic monitoring or a surgical mitral valve replacement or valvuloplasty were really our main options. But this case really highlighted that we can go beyond these interventions. The horizon is really expanding on what we can do for these patients who have mitral stenosis. And finally, I'd like to touch on the summary recommendations for mitral stenosis intervention, and we'll talk about the class one recommendations by the ACC and the AHA. So PMBC is recommended for symptomatic patients who have severe mitral stenosis and a favorable valve morphology in the absence of contraindications. Mitral valve surgery is indicated for those patients who have severe symptoms with severe mitral stenosis, who are not a high risk for surgery, and are not candidates for or who have failed prior PMBC. Concomitant mitral valve surgery is indicated for those patients who have severe mitral stenosis and are undergoing other types of cardiac surgery. And PMBC is reasonable for asymptomatic patients with very severe disease and favorable valve morphology in the absence of contraindications, and that's a class 2A. Sonali, that was just such a tour de force review on mitral stenosis, taking us from the etiologies, classifications, and then management. Taking it back to our patient, a few of the things that are going on in my mind are, so what is the stage of her MS? It sounds like she probably has severe symptomatic mitral stenosis. But then going back to what you were teaching us, what are the next steps in her evaluation? And is this somebody who is going to go towards surgery, towards a percutaneous intervention, or depending on her candidacy for both, maybe some form of conservative management? Great thoughts, Amit. So let's go to what we knew about this patient's mitral valve before her procedure. So this patient came to us already having had two sternotomies. She was advanced in age at 77 at this point. And luckily, by the time she was transferred to us, it already had a lot of baseline imaging done as well. So we knew from roughly a year before she came to us that her mitral valve gradient had been worsening, but also that her regurgitation across the mitral valve had been worsening. So roughly a year prior to presentation, she had a PMVC and then 
several months after that, her mitral gradient was already up to 16 millimeters of mercury. So on the imaging that she came to us with on her transthoracic echocardiogram, on the parasternal long axis, what we can appreciate is heavily calcified mitral valve leaflets, both anterior and posterior, as well as a large amount of mitral annular calcification. On her parasternal short axis views on her transthoracic echo, we get a very good representation of just how calcified those leaflets are. You know, it almost looks like this sort of solid white fish mouth opening and closing in this sea of blackness as the calcium really overwhelms the surrounding non-calcified tissue. On her apical four-chamber pictures, you get a good sense of not just the stenosis in the valve, but also the regurgitation across the valve with the color Doppler images, which indicates that not only is this mitral valve very stiff from being calcified, but it's also not closing well either, resulting in both stenosis and regurgitation. And if you guys remember or have ever looked at your Wilkins classification, looking at whether or not it's okay to do a balloon valvuloplasty for a mitral valve, you'll know that anything above mild to moderate mitral valve regurgitation is a contraindication to that. Yeah, John, these images are so impressive. And for the audience, definitely go to the website and have a look. The mitral annular calcification, as well as the calcification of the subvalvular apparatus, is so prominent. I almost was going to ask you if this patient had a prosthetic mitral valve in place from prior. And, you know, John, you mentioned the Wilkins score, which is a score to see if a patient would be a candidate for the uh, balloon valvuloplasty or commissurotomy. And just for our audience, you can imagine if you use a balloon to dilate open the mitral stenosis and the patient already has some degree or substantial degree of mitral regurgitation, then it could just worsen the MR. And so very intuitive why that's a contraindication. Thanks so much, Amit. And for us, really, the, the biggest shot that we look at is the last one, which is the continuous wave Doppler across the mitral valve. And I will agree with Amit. I, I hope you guys will go and look at the supplementary material online because we got some really great images in this patient. And this is really a classic image of severe mitral stenosis. The patient has a very dense biphasic jet coming through the mitral valve with your E and your A wave. And in measuring the mitral valve VTI, we found that she had a mean pressure gradient across the mitral valve of 16 millimeters of mercury at a heart rate of 68 beats per minute. And with that, I'll pass it off to John Lisko to talk a little bit more in depth about what exactly we were planning on doing for this patient. Thanks, John. We've obviously covered quite a bit of material, but just to overview big picture of this patient, it strikes you by the eyeball test is this is someone that has debilitating symptoms and does not seem like a surgical candidate for a third sternotomy with a high-risk surgery at an advanced age. I think we could all agree on that point with none of us being surgeons, but that then pushes us into what what's available. So, Transcatheter therapies present a novel solution for these type of patients because they're minimally invasive. And even if the procedure is technically challenging, the recovery is often better, which in this demographic is usually of the utmost importance. But if you think about it in the surgical world, when someone gets a mitral valve replacement, a surgeon is able to resect the anterior mitral leaflet or modify the anterior mitral leaflet. In the transcatheter world, when you deploy that transcatheter heart valve, be it an off-label sapien valve in the mitral position or one of the investigational dedicated mitral prostheses, the anterior mitral leaflet is going to be permanently displaced toward the left ventricular outflow tract. 
And this causes a risk of left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, which is by and far probably the most feared complication of transcatheter mitral valve implantation and one of the biggest causes of mortality following the procedure and exclusion from clinical trials of novel devices. Emory was paramount in conjunction with the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, in developing a novel transcatheter electrosurgical technique called Lampoon to overcome this risk. So we're very proud at Emory to be a structural heart intervention network site, meaning that a lot of the procedures that are developed at the NIH in conjunction with Dr. Letterman's lab are done in humans on a compassionate use basis at the Emory Structural Heart and Valve Center. So the premise behind transcatheter electrosurgery is how can we take a surgical technique and make it be performed by catheters with our goal being making the tip of the catheter or an electrified wire have the same impact that a bovie device would in an open surgical solution. So lampoon is intentional laceration of the anterior mitral valve leaflet. And we'll talk in detail about how the procedure is designed and works. But in the supplementary material, I think you see a pretty compelling slide that looks at the Lampoon uh, IDE trial, which was a 30-patient trial for patients at prohibitive risk of left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, and looks at these patients in the context of other patients undergoing TMVR at risk of LVOT obstruction. So you could see in patients at LVOT obstruction in the early days of TMVR and MAC, there was a 38% 38% survival at 30 days. And that's enough that it starts to raise the question, should we even be doing these procedures? Yeah, and just to contextualize, that means that 30 days after this highly complex procedure, two-thirds of patients have died. I mean, it really does beg some questions. Poor prognosis there. Exactly. And so and when you see data like that, I think it pushes you in one of two directions. You either need to, A, stop doing transcatheter mitral valve and MAC cases, or B, find a solution. So we pushed, we pushed hard for B, and that's really what Lampoon was. So Lampoon was studied prospectively. It is the only left ventricular afflow tract obstruction strategy of modification to ever be prospectively studied. And at 30 days, there is 93% survival in the overall cohort. In patients undergoing this therapy for valve in ring, it was 100%. And for valve in MAC, it was 87%. So we almost tripled the survival of patients. And I think no one would argue with a therapy that has a 93% 30-day survival in a prohibitive risk cohort during an IDE trial. And because of the success of Lampoon, we've now rolled it out in a broader sense at Emory, and it's starting to become more common in the United States as well as worldwide. So let's talk about how Lampoon works. For those of you that have access to the internet, this is a cartoon of what's called classic retrograde lampoon. It was the earliest iteration of the technique derived at NIH. Uh, a lot of the credit for this goes to Jaffer Khan, who was a fellow there under Dr. Letterman at the time. And the technique is conceptually simple, but somewhat technically difficult. So what happens is two retrograde catheters are passed through the aortic valve. One's put on the LVOT side and one is put on the atrial side. A wire is positioned at the base of the A2 scallop of the mitral leaflet, and that's confirmed echocardiographically. Sorry, the wire is then electrified and snared in the left atrium. Once it's snared, you've now 
made a wire loop around the anterior mitral valve leaflet. The wire is a long exchange length wire, so it's externalized. An area of the wire is kinked and focally denuded to make something we lovingly call the flying V after the famous Jimi Hendrix guitar. And that flying V is then re-entered into the body and positioned at the base of the A2 scallop. Dextrose is injected, which flushes away ionic blood and confines the ablative energy of an electrified wire to that flying V surface. And once it's electrified, it's pulled and laceration occurs in the direction of the LVOT. So you now have an anterior mitral leaflet with a midline laceration. And the amazing thing about this is because it's an electrical laceration, the valve continues to coapt. So the uh, transcatheter valve is placed inside of the native mitral valve. And when it's inflated, the valve opens to its fully expanded area and the native valve leaflets harmlessly splayed to the side. So blood flow can exist through the open struts of the transcatheter heart valve. And again, the supplementary cartoon online is uh, very easy to follow. Uh, Following that, we also have some supplementary images that show uh, what this laceration looks like in a swine model, uh, of which you can see online. So again, retrograde lampoon was shown to be effective in a prohibitive risk cohort, but the limitation with the technique becoming more widely used was the technical complexity associated with it. And that pushed us to go somewhat back to the drawing board and say, how can we make this simpler so that it's teachable and reproducible and patients can get the benefit of it, not just at highly selected sites in the country, but closer to their home. And because of that, we worked and made what we now call Antigrade Lampoon, which has been published outcomes of the first seven patients in circulation interventions. And Antigrade Lampoon uh, is what you'll see further described in this case, where a single transeptal puncture is used to deliver two steerable sheaths through which two catheters are placed. And now the laceration is still midline, but it doesn't require you to cross the aortic valve using two retrograde catheters, and it's technically simpler to perform. A third variant of Lampoon that has also been very effective and recently accepted for publication in JAK Interventions is a technique that we call tip-to-base Lampoon. So if you think about how we've described Lampoon so far, in both the retrograde technique and the anagrade technique, the traversal wire is traversing at the base of the leaflet. In tip-to-base Lampoon, the laceration is occurring from the tip of the leaflet to the base of the leaflet. And that is a viable therapy for two out of three subgroups of people undergoing TMVR. And those are people going on undergoing TMVR because they have a prior surgically failed mitral uh, bioprosthesis or a mitral ring. And in this situation, there's a catheter that's placed retrograde through the aortic valve. There's another one that's placed through the transeptal puncture. The wire loop is made in the LVOT. And then the flying V is positioned and it's pulled back to lacerate the leaflet. In this situation, the either surgical mitral valve or the surgical mitral ring serves as a stopgap for the laceration. So you can burn the leaflet from the tip all the way up to that ring or valve safely. And it, it allows for lampoon without leaflet traversal, which is, again, technically simpler.
So once we deal with the LVOT obstruction issue, another problem becomes we're not using a dedicated mitral device, right? We're using an off-label aortic valve in the mitral position. And we, we noticed that in certain patients, valve coaxiality was an issue. And we hypothesized that this was in relation to the degree that the mitral annulus aligns with the apex. And we analyzed this again using CT, which is so paramount to all the planning of these procedures. And we look in two views, one being a bicommissural view, one being an LVOT aflatract view. And in patients that have an extreme angle discordance between their mitral annulus and apex, we have routinely instituted using a percutaneous LV rail to improve coaxiality. So you'll see that better displayed in this case. But what's done is that on a CT planning position, a six trench bright tip sheath is ultimately inserted into the LV. A rail is made from the LV to the LA, and the valve can be better positioned. This has been shown to improve coaxiality of the valve and also to decrease associated paravalvular leak. The obvious problem you have is that there's a six French hole in the ventricle. We solve that by um, using an ADO2 occluder on the way out at the end of the case. So for those of you looking at the online supplement, we're continuing to talk about the CT scan. There are things we look at on each and every patient to make sure if we're going to offer someone a therapy, it has a high likelihood of success and we've maximized the safety profile. The first is even if a patient has a MAC, do they have enough MAC to anchor the valve? So the number we use in the office is that someone needs to have 270 degrees of MAC to anchor the valve in most cases, uh, because if you don't have adequate MAC in an adequate landing zone, you may not anchor the TMVR. The other issue becomes, is there a valve that will commercial, a commercially available valve that will fit uh, within that patient's mitral annulus? And in the vast majority of patients who are getting a sapien valve in the mitral position, that proves to be a 26 or 29 valve. We also look, uh, as you, you see it on the online images, but we assess the bicommissural and LVOT flow tract views to get an idea of how coaxial this mitral annulus is uh, with the apex and if the patient is going to end up needing an LV rail. The part of the procedure planning that takes the most time and is probably the most important is the assessment of LVOT obstruction risk. So we do this using, again, the gated cardiac CT, and we typically use about a 40% phase of the RR interval. And we model the intended valve size in two deployment positions, so we have a relative idea of where it'll end up. One is if the valve is placed 90% ventricularly and 10% atrial. Another combination is 80% ventricularly and 20% atrial. And we measure the narrowest distance between the transcatheter heart valve and the interventricular septum, and we planimeter an area. And patients with an area less than 189 to 190 um, millimeters squared are considered to be at high risk for LVOT obstruction. After we analyze that risk, we move back to the, area, the virtual valve's skirt. So for all those uh, who have looked at these valves, you know, Balloon expandable valves have an inner and outer skirt that is there to prevent paravalvular leak. But the skirt, if the LVOT is narrow enough, can interact and cause an obstruction that cannot be overcome with lampoon because lampoon just modifies the patient's native mitral leaflet. It does not modify the transcatheter mitral valve in any way or the skirt. 
So there is a cohort of patients that are at risk what we call, quote, skirt obstruction, meaning if you do lampoon and you put the valve in without some other form of septal modification, you're still going to have a significant and potentially life-threatening gradient. If you're at risk for a skirt obstruction, these patients require some form of septal modification. Alcohol septal ablation, tertransquarinary alcohol septal ablation, has been proposed as a viable a strategy for both skirt obstruction as well as LVOT modification as an alternative to lampoon. Although if you look at that therapy, it's only been studied in a retrospective cohort of patients. And in that cohort, there's, I believe, two deaths associated with the therapy, and only 50% of patients were able to undergo standalone TMVR. So while it's a possible solution, we don't think it's the most elegant or the most surefire solution to treat or prevent uh, LVOT tract obstruction. In addition, it requires an anatomically suitable septal perforator and usually a 30-day waiting period to allow for LVOT modification, whereas Lampoon has no such requirement for an anatomically suitable uh, perforator and can be done at the time of the procedure. There is a theoretical limitation to Lampoon that if someone has a very calcified anterior mitral leaflet, that it may not splay well. In these patients, we've started using adjunct coronary balloons to dilate the tract uh, or even using the shockwave lithotripsy balloon to increase splay. So for our patient, you can see that the neo-LVOT was uh, narrowed and placed the patient at high risk for LVOT uh, outflow tract obstruction, which pushed us down the lampoon pathway. The skirt neo-LVOT was greater than 150 millimeters squared, so there was not a risk of skirt obstruction. And there was significant discordance between the mitral annulus and the apex, which um, made the LV apical rail part of our procedure plan. You know, John, as you go over the advancements in TMVR and uh, the adjunctive procedures that we can do for uh, procedural success, it's just amazing to me that we're even having this conversation. Even five years ago, this is, a, this is something that wasn't as widely available. And something that you said earlier really caught my attention. You were talking about this possibility of, and really the high mortality rate when you get a new LVOT obstruction. And you said, look, we had two options as a field. Either we give up and say, look, this is not worth pursuing, or we innovate. And of course, if cardiologists, we innovated. And the whole story of TMVR, like many others in structural cardiology and just cardiology in general, are really examples of a triumph, triumph of resilience, perseverance, innovation, and advancements in imaging and structural technologies. You know, we, we know the story, and we've covered this um, a number of times on the platform of TAVR, right? Transcatheter aortic valve replacement. Uh, and it's really an area that's advanced very quickly and rapidly with several large randomized controlled trials that have shown efficacy and safety in, in even low-risk patients. Right? This is an area that rapidly progressed, but you know, compared to the mitral annulus, the aortic valve annulus is pretty straightforward and pretty simple. Right? Access is simple. It's a smaller, generally more circular annulus with devices that were adopted successfully very early on. But if you just think about the challenges of TMVR or transcatheter mitral valve replacement, I think of four primary challenges or the four A's right? The first A is access. Like, how do you get there? The mitral annulus is a large annulus. So you need to deliver large devices to the mitral annulus. And so the access can be transeptal, which itself, uh, you know, can pose some challenges. You can do transapical, but of course you're creating a hole in the apex. 
uh, or a surgical access with transatrial, but we've gotten pretty good with transeptal and transapical approaches to deliver these large devices. That's access. The second is the annulus, right? Unlike the aortic valve annulus, the mitral annulus is large, it's asymmetric, saddle-shaped, it's three-dimensional, not in a singular plane. And so just designing a valve for that annulus itself is complicated. The third A is anatomy. So you think about the anatomy of the subvalvular apparatus, the irregularity of the leaflets, the possibility of injuring the apparatus, and interactions like we're talking about with the surrounding structures, like the LVOT, the circumflex artery, which goes around the AV groove. So it's axis, annulus, anatomy, and the last is anchor. Typically, not in our patient, but typically the mitral annulus is, is not calcified, it's pliable, and, so, and it's large, right? So how do you anchor a valve within this area? And that brings us to this valve-in procedures. And so we've got this advancement of balloon-expandable valves that we can dilate or place into a mitral valve that has either a, a failed prosthesis, a valve-in-valve, a failed ring, valid ring. And in this case, mitral annular calcification to serve as that anchor, right? Valve and MAC. But going back to the A for anatomy and issues related to that, we've got issues with the possibility of LVOT obstruction. And there are three things, I think, in, in terms of what, what can cause the LVOT obstruction is the septum, right? And ways to address that may be alcohol septal ablation. You went over the data there very nicely. Another one is just the valve positioning itself. We don't want the valve to be positioned too low. The aerodomitral angulation is important. And so just using our imaging and as well as some applications that, you know, there are softwares for to appropriately size the valve and place the valve, even using the, uh, the transventricular rail, as you suggested. And then we get to the lampoon procedure, which is essentially using this electrified wires to percutaneously sever the anterior mitral valve leaflet, so that when the valve is deployed, the sides of the severed anterior mitral valve leaflet open in this V-shape so that the struts are exposed and so the blood can still go through the struts through the LVOT as long as there's no skirt in the way. So again, this is all to say that everything that we're talking about, there each juncture, there were options. Either we say this is prohibitive in terms of the challenges, but at every step, there was just tremendous amount of perseverance and innovation that got us to this point. With that in mind, what happened with our patient? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that great summary. So to kind of go over our patient, um, we again started with the pre-procedural CT and analyzed very carefully um, for the risk of LVOT obstruction. Our patient's predicted neo-LVOT was less than 190, so we felt that they needed lampoon. Their predicted skirt neo-LVOT was greater than 150, so we did not feel like they required adjunctive septal modification. There was significant discordance between the mitral annulus and the apex. So we did feel that a rail would benefit this patient. And that is the procedure that Dr. Ricketts will now walk us through. Thanks so much, John Lisko. And fast forward, we've got the patient in our hybrid structural cath lab. We've got them on the table. And the first step once they get intubated and sedated is always to drop that TEE probe. And much like before you cardioverte a patient, you always want to double check and make sure they're not in sinus rhythm. The first thing we always do is go and double check all of the pre-procedural studies and measurements we've done to make sure that yes, in fact, this patient does have what we thought they did. 
And so the first thing we did was take a look at the mitral valve. Once again, I will I will rep the supplementary material online. I think we've got a lot of really great pictures in there. And so on our first picture here is our sort of apical three-chamber view from TEE. And what we see there is, yes, indeed, this patient has a high gradient across their mitral valve. They have significant mitral regurgitation, and they have those very calcified leaflets and calcified annulus. A very important tool in the structural imagers toolbox when it comes to interprocedural TEE is the 3D TEE software that comes on all major echocardiography machines. At Emory, our preferred machine and vendor is Philips. They have great 3D software. I'm not a paid spokesperson for Philips Imaging. Um, John, I should have asked you for your disclosures before we started. <laughs> I, yeah. um, and so it's always important to get a good, what's called surgeon's view, which is looking down into the mitral valve through the left atrium with your aortic valve at 12 o'clock. And in our patient, what we saw was that heavily calcified mitral valve, not opening very well, not closing very well, and a very rocky calcified mitral annulus. The first step for this patient after basic access was to establish that apical rail in order to stabilize the valve as it's deployed. We use angiography or a combination of angiography with what's called CT overlay, where we take the CT pictures that we have, integrate those DICOM files in our angiography platform, and our operators can actually see 3D structures reconstructed from the CT films on their angiography. And so in the case of this patient, they put a wire down the LAD and a wire down a distal diagonal branch because they were going to have to split those two branches. And we also used CT overlay to create a 3D model of the exact path that the apical stick and apical rail would need to take that the operators were able to use to line that up and do it very cleanly and very safely in this patient. And Jack, can I ask, just to better understand, the purpose of wiring the LED in the diagonal was to make sure that you didn't hit the vessels as you created the rail? Exactly, because the stick had to go in between those two vessels. And as I'm sure anybody who spent any time in the cath lab knows, unless there's dye flowing through those vessels, it can be tough to tell where they are in motion. And so by having those two wires down, it allowed us to map those vessels in real time to make sure that we weren't going to cause an even bigger problem by puncturing the LAD or diagonal branches we created that apical rail. Incredible. Once that wire goes in, it is threaded up through the mitral valve into the left atrium and then pulled through the transeptal puncture and then taken outside the patient so that you have both ends of the wire outside the patient to create a sturdy rail there. So one end of the wire is going through a femoral vein up the IVC, through the RA, transatrial septal, LA, through the mitral annulus, and then essentially out the LV myocardium and out the skin in the thorax. You've got it. And these pictures angiographically and by echocardiography can get very busy in the middle of the procedure. And so it's always very important that every single person in that room knows exactly what they're looking at and where each structure and piece of equipment is. So next, we did our transeptal puncture with our two steerable catheters from the right femoral vein. Those two steerable catheters are lined up on either side of that anterior mitral valve leaflet. The base of the leaflet is punctured with the wire, which is then snared and pulled back, creating a second rail. And then the flying V is created for the lampoon procedure. 
Now, when we do these, we line them up both with 3D TEE as well as angiographically to make sure that everything is in the correct position. And once we are sure that everything is exactly where it needs to be, that wire is denuded, electrified, dextrose is injected, and then in one smooth motion, that anterior leaflet is lacerated, hopefully down the middle, if everything goes well. And John, these 3D images are just incredible. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I think that's something that is really important. And I I do want to talk about all of these TEE and CT images were obtained by fellows here at Emory. So it's definitely something that we are heavily involved with. And it's important after you make your cut to confirm that, yes, that laceration is there and it's in the midline of the leaflet. And we do that with 3D TEE. Once we have confirmed midline laceration of the leaflet, we use angiography and 3D TEE to line up the valve. Now, Amit was mentioning earlier, there is a lot of equipment that is inside the patient at this point in time. And this procedure is really the definition of measure twice, cut once, because you've only got one shot to get it right. And if you miss, the patient is unlikely to survive. And so it's very important that your imaging teams and interventionalists are working closely together to make sure that everything is lined up precisely. And talk about high stakes. It is when you are getting to the point of deploying the valve during these procedures, you could hear a pin drop in that hybrid cath lab. And so once everyone is happy with the position of the valve, the balloon is then inflated while the patient is paced at a high rhythm. Because remember, basically, you are obstructing blood flow through the heart as that balloon is being inflated, exactly like with a TAVR procedure. What you're saying is the rapid pacing essentially causes cardiac standstill so that as you deploy the valve, whether it's a mitral position or the aortic position here in the mitral position, you're deploying it in a stable standstill annulus. Exactly. And only those with the strongest of heart will look back at anesthesia while that is going on. (laughs) (laughs) And so once our valve is deployed, it is an immediate rush to make sure that everything is properly positioned and that the blood flow through the valve and annulus is correct. And so immediately we go to angiographic biplane in the short and long axis of the newly deployed valve to make sure that it is seated well. If you do have access to the online supplementary material, you'll notice in the short axis that although this is a commercially available TAVR valve that's being used off-label for the mitral valve, it's not a totally circular structure. I think that really belies the different shape of the mitral annulus versus the aortic annulus there. And then we take a look with our 3D TEE, and what we can see is that there is a well-seated valve in place. We see that there is trace leak still through the valve that's just there because we have a wire going across it from our apical rail. But overall, the valve is well seated. It's opening. The patient is getting good blood flow through it. And when we check continuous wave Doppler through that newly deployed transcatheter valve, we see the patient now has a mean pressure grading across their mitral valve of two millimeters of mercury, whereas they started the procedure with a mean pressure grading of 16 millimeters of mercury. And it's just amazing. The other important aspect of this, like John Lisko was talking about earlier, is to make sure that there's no LVOT obstruction. That's something that we check both at the time of the procedure and with a follow-up transthoracic echocardiogram the next day. And in the patient's transthoracic echo the next day, what we saw was fantastic flow through the mitral valve itself and a transaortic gradient of 11 millimeters of mercury, indicating that there was no significant LVOT obstruction. 
in patients that get this specific procedure, it's also important for us to do a follow-up CT scan so that we can really review the anatomy of where the valve is, how it's sitting, and its relation to other cardiac structures. And so on the follow-up CT of the patient, what we were able to see is that valve is once again very well seated in the calcified mitral annulus. The tips of the struts are just poking into the septum near the LVOT in mid-systole. And then in some of my personal favorite pictures on the CT, we're able to reconstruct the narrowest point of the LVOT and see visually the open cells in that transcatheter mitral valve open and ready to allow blood to flow through in systole. And so as far as our patient is concerned, they tolerated the procedure. They were extubated immediately following the procedure and transferred to the CCU for monitoring overnight. By the next morning, they were ambulating independently and were transferred to the floor. Their transthoracic echo on post-op day one showed an ejection fraction of 60%, a mitral valve mean gradient of 6 millimeters of mercury, and an aortic valve mean gradient of 11 millimeters of mercury. Our patient was restarted on their home Coumadin on post-op day two and discharged home several days later after their INR became therapeutic and has done very well since that time. I think ultimately for us, the big points we wanted to drive home with this talk is that mitral stenosis, like you said, it's very difficult to manage and often affects patients who are high surgical risk. Previously, we had very few good non-surgical options, the main option being balloon valvuloplasty, which if you have any experience with patients who undergo balloon valvuloplasty, is a very fleeting treatment in almost every single case, and that new transcatheter techniques that we've described here can really provide durable treatment for mitral valve disease in these high-risk non-surgical patients. You guys talk about triumph of innovation. I just have to applaud all of you guys and your team for the incredible work um, that you did for this patient. And just thinking through what you did so successfully, you completely altered the trajectory of revalvular heart disease. You obliterated that gradient. The blood can now easily pass from the LA to the LV. It's a difference you made uh, just over the course of a couple of hours in the procedure suite. And this is a situation where so many things can go wrong intraprocedurally and with the outcome. Just thinking over the valve itself, you can have paravalvular leak, mitral regurgitation through the leaflets, uh, clotting of the valve, functional mitral stenosis, potentially from a patient prosthesis mismatch. You've got a big hole in the atrial septum. You can essentially cause an ASD, neo-LVOT obstruction, in addition to all the periprocedural risks of getting access and putting catheters in the body and wires down coronary blood vessels. And when you compare the valve in procedures in the mitral position, valve and valve, valve and ring, valve and MAC, you and it all had a nice paper in 2019, where they essentially showed that the valve and MAC procedures were the riskiest, right? With the lowest procedural success rate, the highest short-term, near-term, and long-term mortality, the worst risk of uh, LVOT obstruction, and the highest rate of conversion to surgery. And so what your team was able to do for this patient is just nothing short of miraculous, almost sounds a little bit... Uh, uh, hyperbolic, but I, you know, I think from a perspective of just 10 years ago, I think it's nothing short of a miracle. And I'm reminded of a JFK quote. He said, there are risks and costs to action, but they are far less than the long range risks of comfortable inaction. And so just to go back to John Lusco's point, where, you know, when there was a fork at the road, uh, we could have had comfortable inaction, you know, the field, uh, you know, your team over there, and so many others have decided to take the risks and costs of action, but really to provide such an incredible tool for our patients. So congratulations for taking such tremendous care of your patient. It just gives us a glimpse of 
the teamwork and innovation and the capabilities that you all train with there at Emory. So I'd like to take this moment to ask you all, what is it that drove you to pursue cardiology and what makes your hearts flutter about training at Emory? Thank you so much, Amit. And this question has really allowed me to reflect on my journey so far. So I actually initially gravitated towards cardiology when I was very young, around seven or eight years old. I had a tragic experience with my grandmother losing her to an MI when she was in her early 50s. And I'm sure a lot of folks out there interested in cardiology have had these personal or family experiences that have driven them towards this profession. But this interest was really solidified after I began enjoying the process of reading EKGs in medical school at GW. I worked with the director of cardiology there, Dr. Richard Katz, who was really involved with teaching and medical student education. And I just found cardiac physiology just so particularly fascinating. But I've absolutely loved my time here at Emory, both during internal medicine residency and now during fellowship. And there have just been so many huge successes and truly pivotal moments that have happened for cardiology here at Emory with giants of the field, including Dr. Hurst and Dr. Grunzig and pioneers for prevention in women in cardiology with Dr. Nanette Wenger and Dr. Gina Lundberg. And I just remember being awe-inspired working with Dr. Wenger as an intern at Grady Hospital. And the experience of working with her was a huge reason for why I wanted to stay on for a fellowship. And during residency, I became more interested in interventional, especially after the opportunity of working both clinically and on research with my mentor, Dr. Habib Samadi. He is the director of interventional cardiology at Emory and one of the foremost international experts in coronary physiology, intravascular imaging, and leveraging biomechanics to understand how stents heal. And now in fellowship, particularly in this academic research track, I am working with Dr. Samadi on research for these first two years, uh, studying biomechanics and stent healing, where I get to work alongside with this amazing team of mathematicians and engineers from Georgia Tech. And we do a lot of collaborative, exciting work on computational fluid dynamics and wall shear stress. And then I will start my two general cardiology clinical years at the end of this academic year. And during the course of my research years, I've really had the chance to expand on my research interests. I've also worked with um, Dr. Puja Mehta studying microvascular disease. And more recently, we studied and published in CCI on how we can use functional coronary angiography to help with diagnosis in patients with chest pain and non-obstructive CAD. And as we saw today, Dr. Bob Leros and Dr. Greenbaum and the whole structural heart team at Emory really just do these amazing procedures that have truly changed the way that we have approached valvular pathologies for the longest time and have made incredible differences, as you were mentioning, Amit, in patients' lives for the better. And I think one of the aspects I cherish most, the ones when I think about what really keeps me going, is that I just, I absolutely love the people that I work with. And I mean that both John Ricketts and John Lisko were both seniors when I started as a baby intern here at Emory. And now we're all working together um, in fellowship. I love my co-fellows. We're there for each other. We're a big program. So it's easy for us to do things like provide coverage, but we're also there to cheer each other on, help each other out on those difficult, demanding, long, clinical, busy days. We hang out with each other after work, whether it's going to brunch or going to the gym together. It's all pre-pandemic, of course, but, and hopefully we'll continue in this post-COVID era as well. But 
I'm also co-chair of our Women in Cardiology group, which has just been a fantastic experience. We meet on a monthly basis with faculty and fellows for peer mentorship and support. Right now, most of these meetings are happening via Zoom, but I've just cherished and loved these meetings and all of our program leadership. Our program director, Dr. Williams, is just so incredibly supportive. He's always sharing opportunities with us, encouraging us to really be our best. And I feel truly feel so blessed to be continuing my training here in cardiology um, at Emory with outstanding peers and faculty mentorship. And just thank you so much, Amit, for having us here again. Thanks so much for having us, Hamid. Unlike Sonali, I, in fact, did not know that I was going to become a cardiologist from a young age. I actually came to Emory really interested in health policy and came in as a member of the primary care track of the internal medicine uh, residency. And I'll never forget as an intern, had a month of general cardiology and the cardiology fellow that I worked under at Emory as a resident was just phenomenal. And I remember by the end of the month, just coming into work every day and and thinking, I want to be like this guy when I grow up. And he really encouraged me to pursue cardiology, got me really interested in it, especially the data-based aspects of it. And I had loved training at Emory so much that I really wanted to stay on and have had a fantastic fellowship. I think Emory Cardiology Fellowship is great. I'm in the three-year clinical track. And I think one of the great things about that is it has allowed me to get two years of really solid general cardiology training. And then be able to use my third clinical year to focus in on aspects of cardiology that I really enjoy, which for me is advanced imaging and structural heart disease. So I've been able to take a large portion of my third year as a fellow. I'm embedded with the structural heart team doing pre-procedure TEEs, CTs, intraprocedural imaging, and really adding that to my repertoire for when I finish training. And I don't know that I could have done that anywhere other than Emory. I think it's a great program from the top down. We've got fantastic leadership, fantastic mentors. I probably would count at least two or three different physicians within the program as major mentors of mine now. And the peers are just fantastic. I couldn't ask for a better group of people to work with. Thanks again for having us, Amith. It was a really great opportunity and really enjoyed it. I am also on the Sonali track there where I remember when I was a kid, I actually saw a cath lab and thought it was the coolest thing and just kept saying I was going to be a cardiologist. And then my my jump shot was never that great. So I just went back to saying I'd be a cardiologist. 30 years later, uh, I'm at Emory. So it's been been fantastic. And Emory has been a magical place to work. You go in the locker room and there's still Andreas Grinzig's locker there that you can see. And just the amount of history and the people um, really make the institution and make it a fun place to go to work. And you're respected uh, as a fellow here in a way where you feel like a peer. Uh, and that, that starts from the top down. Dr. Williams is our program director and by and far one of the most professional and classiest program directors I've ever interviewed, interacted with. He gives fellows appropriate leeway to see their goals and dreams out and is nothing but supportive. I was really fortunate when I came to Emory to get hooked up with a guy named Dr. Stam Larrakis, who was an imaging guru, really, in the structural heart world and is now the head of non-invasive imaging at Mount Sinai. Uh, And through him, met the structural heart team and ultimately decided to pursue the research pathway where I worked with uh, Drs. Babliero's and Greenbaum for two years, as well as Dr. Robert Letterman at the NIH. And on our surgical cohort, we have Dr. Kendra Grubb, Dr. Robert Guyton, Dr. Guy Payone, some new faculty, Dr. Sita Baiku on the interventional side, 
And uh, a name that hasn't been mentioned but really should be is Dr. Patrick Gleason, who is the head of structural imaging at Emory right now and has been absolutely instrumental, as well as Dr. Devaretti, who's another one of our interventional structural group. And the team that has been built at Emory around structural heart is really fantastic. It's everyone works in the same geographical office. It feels like a family. Nobody, nobody minds being there till whenever the work needs to get done. But the mentorship is fantastic. The opportunities are fantastic. And it's a, it's a place that has a we'll figure it out attitude. And it's inspirational to watch and see and to understand the process of innovation and what it takes to, to see something over the finish line. Sonali, John Lusco and John Ricketts, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to prepare this case. The case uh, was incredible. Your teaching was next level. And apart from today, I'd never been to Atlanta. I never had the pleasure of visiting Emory. You know, I'll say from the Cardinals perspective, we feel very connected with Emory in so many ways. We had a pleasure of, uh, you know, of having Dr. Nanette Wenger on uh, one of our episodes, which was, I think, one of our proudest episodes, one of our most impactful episodes. And I just remember when we were recording, we all just had goosebumps and were besides ourselves in awe of this incredible person. Dr. Gina Lundberg has been just such an advocate for the platform and a huge source of support. Dr. Kimberly Manning, who is on PD of the transitional year and just a giant in medical education and advocacy and diversity, has been a constant source of mentorship, support, and just in terms of how we teach uh, and also in uh, how we're crafting an upcoming series on diversity. And a special shout out to Dr. Oslem Bilen, who um, initially contacted us via Twitter to connect all of us uh, with you guys to get this episode going. So uh, very grateful for her because this is just an absolute treat. Yes, definitely. Um, a special shout out and huge thank you to Dr. Oslem Belen for giving us this amazing opportunity to be here on Cardio Nerds. She's always looking out and thinking of these really creative ways to have us fellows more involved. And we are definitely so thankful to her for that. Clearly, Emory is just a really special place and a mecca, not just for cardiology, but medicine, uh, rich history and advocacy, policy, mentorship, teaching. So very thankful to you guys for letting us experience how special Emory is. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. And now for the ECPR segment by the co-directors of the Emory Structural Heart and Valve Center and pioneers in the field of transcatheter electrosurgery, the two-time NIH Orloff Award winners, Dr. Vasilis Babliaros and Adam Greenbaum. Hi, I'm Adam Greenbaum. I'm one of the co-directors of the Center for Structural Heart Disease here at Emory University. And I'm Vasilis Babaliaros, the co-director on the cardiology side. And thanks for joining us today to talk about TMDR, Lampoon, and other variants. So the, the questions I think that most people want to know is, you know, what are we doing and, and why are we doing it? Lampoon has a very interesting history. It's another NIH initiative that began in 2016. And Adam and I have independently observed was that the uh, role of the anterior mitral leaflet, particularly for, for TMVR, was obstructive in many ways. Uh, one of the LVOT, two, we were seeing overhanging leaflets. And, and three, there was even a question of, of whether it was contributing to early valve thrombosis. And independently, we had noticed this. I actually published a paper in CCI together about three patients that that we had some issues with the anterior leaflet. Made the the argument that maybe we we should consider addressing it 
At the same time, both our centers, Adam at Henry Ford and myself at Emory, you know, had experimented with some other different procedures. One that is very memorable was um, a case that was done with open surgery and a Sapien 3 in, in Mac where there was a felt skirt sewed onto it. And, and what we watch the surgeons do is make a small slit in the anterior mitral leaflet and say, hey, that's all you need to do, make a small wedge resection. And I think it dawned on everybody at that point that unless we were doing an extensive resection, a small a small splay in the leaflet was very doable percutaneously. And uh, we were sent a case from Tennessee in a patient that needed a valve and ring and had an anterior leaflet that was probably close to 30 millimeters long. And we said, I, you know, there, there's no risk of LVOT obstruction. This thing is going to drape all over the TMVR and may interfere with some of its functioning, which was what that CCI paper was about. At least one of the cases was. And, and we, we put our coconuts together, Adam and I and Robert Letterman and said, how, how do we solve this problem? And my initial concept was to sort of perforate through the leaflet and, and just balloon it and, and tear it. And, and Adam, who had had a lot of experience with Transcable at that time, he's like, well, why don't we burn it? And so the NIH people went back to the lab. And at that point, there was a young fellow in Robert's lab named Jaffer Khan, who was just, you know, very, very interesting doc. He had a lot of vision. And, and he worked out with Robert and some of the NIH crew how we were going to traverse the leaflet and then lacerate it midline. And they had a few different ideas, but, but that's kind of how retrograde uh, Lampoon, what we call Lampoon Classique, came about. And from the time of the ideas that we kicked around, because it, 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 there was a patient, this patient that came to us, I think it was, what, 31 days or, or something very short, where, where we said, okay, we've got this problem, and we went kind of bench to bedside or, or, or cat lab, bench to cat lab in about 30 days. And the first lampoon was done April of 2016, right. right? And so Adam came down for that and before Adam moved to, to Emory, but, but we certainly were, were working in this direction and the case was done by the, by the conglomerate and with, with the NIH. And, and that's how, Lampoon started, and, and um, interesting, the, the the traversal and the laceration, everything was pretty straightforward because this was a long leaflet. It was a big target. There was not much calcium. You know, we, it was, despite a very straightforward lampoon, it was still a very uh, memorable case, and that there were still pitfalls to, to deal with. But, but the patient survived and still alive today. And presented with systemic or supersystemic pulmonary artery pressures that, that eventually resolved. And, and the idea was, if we could get, just get them better a little bit, we, we would operate on this patient later. But as it turned out, the patient did quite well, and we ended up not having an operation. Is that the way you you remember the sure the first case? And and what we thought about was also at the time was you know that we were we were also dabbling with other methods to increase the. LVOT diameter to avoid LVOT obstruction, particularly septal ablation. But but the real issue was the anterior leaflet, and we felt why not why not see if we could tackle directly the problem instead of sort of adding right now we have to ablate the septum, wait six weeks, redo a CT, and make sure that there was enough room, and sometimes there wasn't. Uh, you didn't have the traditional signs of success as you would giving 
alcohol to the septum for, for hokum, for, per se. And so we, if the problem was the anterior leaflet, why, why not address it directly? And as it turns out, since then we've learned a lot and there's been many modifications to the technique and, it, and it's certainly what we describe as leaflet modification is, is certainly part of both mitral and aortic procedures now. Along the way, though, we did also learn that the anterior leaflet and LVOT obstruction is not the only problem with <laughs> TNVR in ring and in MAC. For instance, there are still issues with valve placement, valve orientation, commissural alignment. We started to notice that a lot of these other problems were getting in the way of our overall success, even though we were now addressing very well the LVT obstruction and long leaflet with Lampoon. It does a great job. And so that led to our overall mission to say, how do we make this procedure more reproducible and possibly down the road more democratizable? Mm-hmm. And so that led to concepts with, could we more accurately predict commissural alignment of the new valve? Could we improve orientation, canting angles. Could we prevent perivalvular leak either by better pre-procedural planning or modification of the valve itself? And that led to some of these other emery-based concepts. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the the democratization of, of Lampoon, you can see that in the, in the commentary for the integrated Lampoon paper. And, you know, one step led to others, as, as Adam is pointing out. And we, you know, it's funny, we realize... As we kind of dealt with one problem, we, we started to uncover what we didn't know about, about other things that were, were creating issues. The use of aortic valve in the, in the mitral position, a, a non-dedicated delivery system and a non-dedicated valve, you know, we started seeing chinks in that armor. The canting angles, what we learned that if, if we were deploying the valve and we were very canted or we were not orthogonal, to the valve plane or the annular plane, we learned that that created leaks and and created uh, misdeployments, and that had to be altered. So we started looking at the, the we knew that the valves would would the delivery systems ultimately would follow the wire, and that when the valve plane you know was oriented well towards the apex of the heart, that was great, very easy deployment, and when it wasn't, particularly with some of these rings that were turned into the septum. That required us to change the trajectory of the wire. And so the apical rail resurfaced again. And it wasn't really an apical rail. It was an LV rail. And that, that certainly improved, one, our, our positioning and, and, two, our trajectories. And so it's almost like we had the, the best of both worlds. We could go like it was a trans-apical deployment, though we never had to put a 20-something French sheath in the apex. So we... We, Adam had a lot of experience with things with post with poke and poke in the way out. So we started uh, using CT to predict where, where to poke and, and where to align these things. We learned that the only thing that really seals in this valve is the external skirt. And that, um, in order, uh, you know, if you're trying to land in a very short landing zone with an external skirt that's only a few millimeters, it was a little bit like landing a 747 on a parking lot. And so the, the rails actually did help uh, a little bit with that. We had modified, we could change which way the nose was was directing by following the wire. We could also change the back of the valve using a technique called poulet. It was a suture-mediated technique where we could flex 
the back, particularly for those people that we had a very short distance from the transeptal puncture to the annular plane. So we started mixing all these things together, including modification of the sapien valve and the external skirt to try and improve outcomes. What ultimately we started noticing that a lot of these patients had these very small hypercontractile hearts and that they had common aortic stenosis. And all this had to be, had to be dealt with and, uh, in order for, for, to make a technically successful procedure with clinical benefit, which means that the patient had to not be hurt by the procedure and be able to get up and increase their activity, not just sit in the bed with, with a low LVOT gradient or, or no mitral stenosis or, or no mitral regurgitation. The leak business has gotten considerably better and is also a major so source of morbidity for, for our patients because trans, transfusion or repetitive transfusions of people with, with hemolytic uh, anemia through these small paravalvular leaks were, were, were very difficult to manage. And so as we continue to peel back the onion, we, we see that, you know, it's probably the most challenging case that we're doing at this point, and it is the valve and MAC and the valve and rings, and the, the outcomes have improved a ton, and which the number of patients, the denominator has improved a ton. There have been some larger registries following the data on these patients or, or trying to ultimately you know, see if they can prospectively make a better outcomes from better patient selection and more understanding, which I think is is important. But but all ultimately it is all these adjuncts that have created some forward movement. And until we get dedicated delivery systems and dedicated valves, we're still left with off the shelf adjuncts to improve this. And and so we you know there, there are a lot of people that have interest in this technique, but I would say unless you are prepared uh, for for all these extras, accessorizing your delivery systems and your valves and, and modifying your, your leaflets, including, you know, the, the latest has been a, you know, before the, the laceration of the leaflet is to actually balloon the base of the leaflet to make a, a wider split. It was a, a, a concept Adam was like, let's, let's deal with this because we were seeing some very calcified leaflets that weren't splaying as much. And, and we saw some, some neo-LVOTs that were, or skirt neo-LVOTs that were a little too borderline even for us to tackle. And unless you're willing to do all of this, which means you need, you know, an exceptional anesthesiologist, exceptional imager, you need exceptional surgical partners, and a cath lab team that's willing to tackle these procedures that can, can sometimes go on for hours, it's, it's probably not a great field to, to dabble in. And you know, these are all kind of building blocks. Yeah. What, so what you saw in this particular case that you discussed, many of these techniques used, for instance, this patient received a version of Lampoon called anorograde Lampoon. They did have a mechanical aortic valve, so there was no AV rail created, but they did receive anorograde Lampoon to split the leaflet. They did receive a paraapical or LV rail to align that valve. There was on-the-table modification of that skirt to further minimize perivalvular leak. And her valve was preferentially crimped to achieve best commissural alignment of the sapient 3 valve as well. All of those leading to a great result for this particular patient that she probably would not have received had not all of them been used. And so I think that's Vasily's point, which is... Currently, 
doing TMVR in rings and mags in particular with off-label use of an aortic bioprosthesis. I think you have to be all in. And now a word from our program director, Dr. Byron Robinson Williams III, who is a really great mentor to all of us. Hello, my name is Robbie Williams. I am the fellowship program director at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. I want to start out by thanking our excellent fellows, John, John and Sonali, for presenting this case. Emory University is, is located in Atlanta, Georgia. We have a, a large and diverse fellowship program here at Emory. We have anywhere from usually 45 to 50 fellows in our program at any given time. That includes both our clinical fellows and our research track fellows. Uh, and then if you throw in our subspecialty fellows, it number approaches 60. So a large fellowship. We have four training sites here at our program in Atlanta. Emory University Hospital, which is our sort of main hospital, a tertiary referral center for not just the city, but the region. We have a community hospital, Emory University Hospital Midtown. There is a Grady Hospital, which is the public safety net hospital for Atlanta. and It's a level one trauma center and the largest hospital in Georgia. And then the Atlanta VA Medical Center, as well as a regional referral center for the, for the VA network. We have three tracks in our fellowship. We have a three-year clinical track and two research tracks, a a basic science research track and a clinical research track as well. As I mentioned, we have a a large fellowship with a lot of fellows that come from all over the country and really all over the world, a very diverse group. In addition to our excellent clinical training and research opportunities, we also offer many options in terms of subspecialty training. Emory University Hospital was where Dr. Andreas Grunzig developed a balloon angioplasty in the late 1970s, early 1980s. So we have one of the oldest interventional cardiology programs in the country, if not the oldest. So we have five interventional cardiology fellows here at Emory per year. We have an EP program that has four fellows per year. We have an adult congenital program, advanced heart failure transplant program, which is very busy. We have a structural heart disease program, which is one of the busiest in the country, and two structural fellows that stay on for an extra year after doing a year of interventional cardiology. We also offer advanced training in preventive cardiology, critical care, cardiology, vascular medicine, advanced imaging, and there are probably other things I'm forgetting as well, but really all sorts of outstanding clinical training opportunities, again, as well as research here in a, in a fine city to live in, Atlanta, Georgia. So again, I want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast and it's nice uh, having the opportunity to talk to you today. Thanks. Wow. What an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardioNerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter. 
You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardinerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Rizzo for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split.